just off the coast of the Pacific Northwest, two tectonic plates, the Juan de Fuca Plate and the Pacific Plate, are continuing their ceaseless battle of supremacy as the Juan de Fuca Plate subducts beneath the Pacific Plate, pressuring it to the point where it will buckle and then snap, causing an earthquake up to 9.2 in intensity and displacing trillions of tons of water along a 700-mile fault line extending northward from Cape Mendocino, California to Vancouver and devastating most cities and communities along the coasts of Washington State, Oregon, and Northern California. This event will be 10 times more powerful than anything the San Andreas Fault Line can produce, according to scientists. This isn't science fiction. This is hard reality. And scientists who have drilled into the sea bottom for evidence of past ruptures have found an average of one every 240 years for at least the past 10,000 years. The last huge cataclysm occurred in 1700. The U.S. is 70 years overdue. This frightening reality was brought to light in a well-written article by Katherine Schultz for the New Yorker magazine just a few years ago, an article which launched shockwaves of its own with regard to panic and fear in the Pacific Northwest and a much heightened sense of awareness along the entire West Coast. She definitely woke up some people when she added this quote from Kenneth Murphy, who directs FEMA's Region 10, the division responsible for Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Alaska, when he said, Our operating assumption is that everything west of Interstate 5 will be toast. To elaborate on everything west of Interstate 5, in the Pacific Northwest, the area of impact will cover some 140,000 square miles including Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, Eugene, Salem, the capital city of Oregon, Olympia, the capital of Washington, and some 7 million people. When the next full margin rupture happens, that region will suffer the worst natural disaster in the history of North America. Roughly 3,000 people died in San Francisco's 1906 earthquake. Almost 2,000 died in Hurricane Katrina. Almost 300 died in Hurricane Sandy. FEMA projects that nearly 13,000 people will die in the Cascadia earthquake and tsunami. Another 27,000 will be injured, and the agency expects that it will need to provide shelter for a million displaced people and food and water for another 2.5 million. This is one time I'm hoping all the science is wrong, and it won't happen for another thousand years, Murphy says. In fact, the science is robust, and one of the chief scientists behind it is Chris Goldfinger. Thanks to work done by he and his colleagues, we now know that the odds of the big Cascadia earthquake happening in the next 50 years are roughly 1 in 3. The odds of the very big one are roughly 1 in 10. Even those numbers do not fully reflect the danger, or, more to the point, how unprepared the Pacific Northwest is to face it. The truly worrisome figures in this story are these. 30 years ago, no one knew that the Cascadia subduction zone had ever produced a major earthquake. 45 years ago, no one even knew it existed. In her Pulitzer Prize winning article, a link to which we added in our show notes so you can subscribe to The New Yorker, Catherine assembles the pieces to the story as if she were putting together a mystery, introducing the reader to geographical clues the discovery of the Cascadia subduction zone, 
the introduction of the plate tectonics theories which started in the 1960s, the story on plate subduction zones, then the 1987 discovery made by USGS geologist Brian Atwater and the graduate student David Yamaguchi, whose expertise lays in the study of tree rings, in the ghost forest of the Copalas River near the Washington coast, so-called due to a huge forest of long dead but still standing cedars, their trunks worn down to eerie-looking gray cores, their roots killed by saltwater exposure over hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, or so scientists thought. Atwater, according to the article, discovered that the trees had died quickly when the ground beneath them suddenly sank. Yamaguchi took samples of the cedars and found that they had died simultaneously in tree after tree. The final rings dated to the summer of 1699. Since trees do not grow in the winter, he and Atwater concluded that sometime between August of 1699 and May of 1700, an earthquake had caused the land to drop and kill the cedars. That time frame predated by more than a hundred years the written history of the Pacific Northwest. And so, by rights, the detective story should have ended there. But she dug further, knowing that a major cataclysm would have sent shockwaves as far as Japan, and finding that the Japanese have kept track of tsunamis since at least 599 A.D. In that 1,400-year history, one incident has long stood out for its strangeness. On the eighth day of the twelfth month of the twelfth year of the Genruku era, a 600-mile-long wave struck the coast, leveling homes, breaching a castle moat, and causing an accident at sea. The Japanese understood that tsunamis were the result of earthquakes, yet no one felt the ground shake before the Genroku event. The wave had no discernible origin. When scientists began studying it, they called it an orphan tsunami. Finally, in a 1996 article in Nature, a seismologist named Kenji Sataki and three colleagues, drawing on the work of Atwater and Yamaguchi, matched that orphan to its parent, and thereby filled in the blanks in the Cascadia story with uncanny specificity. At approximately 9 o'clock at night on January 26, 1700, a magnitude 9-0 earthquake struck the Pacific Northwest, causing sudden land subsidence, drowning coastal forests, and, out in the ocean, lifting up a wave half the length of a continent. It took roughly 15 minutes for the eastern half of that wave to strike the northwest coast. It took 10 hours for the other half to cross the ocean. It reached Japan on January 27, 1700, by the local calendar, the eighth day of the twelfth month of the twelfth year of Jinroku. The puzzle had come together. Miss Schultz then compiled ancient legends of the Northwest Pacific tribes, who would have been the only witnesses to an event of this magnitude, and found a rich storehouse of Indian legend. Not wanting to give up her story, we researched and found a couple of stories we can add to her article. The native tribes of the Pacific Northwest have legends of the great water that came long ago, stripping the trees off the mountains and washing away entire villages. One of those legends is called The Whale and the Thunderbird. In this legend, the Thunderbird seizes a whale, and the two fight for a long time, the wings of the Thunderbird beating so hard that the ground shakes violently, until the Thunderbird finally drops the whale back in the sea, causing waves that come and destroy the villages. One story from Washington State 
tells of a huge earthquake occurring in the middle of the night. And some versions of the story say that that happened after the people in the village had misbehaved. Elders told the young that they must run for high ground. Those who heed their warning survived, although the floodwaters followed close behind them. They spent a cold night in the hills, surrounded by animals who have also fled the flood. In the morning they find that all traces of their village and all neighboring coastal villages have been completely washed away, and no one else has survived. Canoes that had been washed inland were later found hanging high in trees. Among the signs of danger, the elders warned, is long-lasting shaking moving from west to east, and sand that becomes so loose people walking on the beach sink into it. Focusing now on the Cascadia subduction zone, when that Juan de Fuca plate drops and the Pacific plate snaps upward, as it's going to do probably in our lifetimes. Unless you think that four feet of ocean depth is nothing to be concerned about, be reminded that the entire column of water, all 8,985 feet of it, is what dropped four feet, and it did so over an area several miles wide. When the tectonic plate snapped back upward, it launched that entire 8,985-foot column of water upward and toward the shore. As the continental shelf rises toward the shore, the ocean gets more shallow. That 8,985-foot column of water starts accumulating upon itself as it moves shoreward, becoming one massive wave, perhaps 45 to 50 feet tall, that hits the shore for 20 minutes. Now do you see why this is a big deal? If such a thing were to happen today in a now-populated North America, hundreds of thousands of people would be killed as a 15-meter, 45-foot wall of water came ashore well inland, passing Interstate 5 and destroying everything in its path from the beach to Interstate 5. Looking at a map of Interstate 5, everything to the left of it, to the west, would be wiped out. Not a pleasant thought. This type of tectonic movement has a direct effect upon the volcanoes in the Cascadia volcanic chain, in particular, Mount Hood. When the Juan de Fuca tectonic plate goes beneath the North American plate, it begins to get crushed. The heat from the friction of the two massive plates rubbing together melts the Juan de Fuca plate into magma. I'm looking at a map now showing me that all along the Cascadia subduction zone are volcanoes. Most of them are inactive, but some are quite active. The volcanoes offer a release valve for built-up pressure. Mount Hood is just east of Portland, Oregon. There's a magma tunnel leading directly from the Cascadia subduction zone straight up into Mount Hood. As the Juan de Fuca tectonic plate is being crushed, which it is right now, it is melting into magma, lava. Whether or not there's enough magma to cause Mount Hood to erupt is unknown. That's a mystery. When an event in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Oregon in the Cascadia subduction zone occurs, it is a very rare occurrence with serious implications. It is worthy of very close monitoring by persons in the potentially affected areas. This event is a potential warning of a possible pending large earthquake on the west coast. There could also be an eruption at Mount Hood. Folks in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California, as well as in Vancouver, British Columbia, and Canada, should make certain they're prepared to take emergency action in the event a major quake does strike. Most people in the United States know just one fault line by name, the San Andreas, which runs nearly the length of California 
and is perpetually rumored to be on the verge of unleashing the big one. That rumor is misleading, no matter what the San Andreas ever does. Every fault line has an upper limit to its potency, determined by its length and width, and by how far it can slip. For the San Andreas, one of the most extensively studied and best understood fault lines in the world, that upper limit is roughly an 8.2, a powerful earthquake. But because the Richter scale is logarithmic, only 6% as strong as the 2011 quake event in Japan. Just north of the San Andreas, however, lies the previously mentioned Cascadia subduction zone, which is your bad boy. It runs for 700 miles off the coast of the Pacific Northwest, beginning near Cape Mendocino, California, continuing along Oregon and Washington, and terminating around Vancouver Island, Canada. The Cascadia part of its name comes from the Cascade Mountain Range, a chain of volcanic mountains that follow the same course 100 or so miles inland. The subduction zone part, and yes, this bears repeating, refers to a region of the planet where one tectonic plate is sliding underneath or subducting another. Tectonic plates are those slabs of mantle and crust that, in their epoch's long drift, rearrange the Earth's continents and oceans. If you're looking at a globe, at one time, all the continents were connected into one landmass. But underneath that one landmass were a number of different tectonic plates. Something caused them to start to break off and split off. You can still look at the globe and see, like puzzle pieces, how these continents used to fit together, like a puzzle. But no longer. The plates underneath them shifted apart. It must have been a time of great upheaval. The first sign that the Cascadia earthquake has begun will be a compressional wave, radiating outward from the fault line. Compressional waves are fast-moving, high-frequency waves, audible to dogs and certain other animals, but experienced by humans only as a sudden jolt. They're not very harmful, but they're potentially very useful since they travel fast enough to be detected by sensors 30 to 90 seconds ahead of other seismic waves. That's enough time for earthquake early warning systems, such as those in use throughout Japan, to automatically perform a variety of life-saving functions shutting down railways and power plants, opening elevators and firehouse doors, alerting hospitals to halt surgeries, and triggering alarms so that the general public can take cover. Most of the Pacific Northwest has no early warning system that can do those things. Earthquakes and Tsunamis, The Time to Get Ready is Now, released in 2013, contains important information you should know if you're living in a high-risk area. If you're coastal, Pay attention to some of these tsunami warning signs. A strong earthquake or one that lasts for 20 seconds or longer. If the ocean withdraws or rises rapidly. A loud roaring sound like an airplane or train coming from the direction of the ocean. Tsunami warnings broadcast over television and radio by beach lifeguards, community sirens, text message alerts, National Weather Service Tsunami Warning Center websites, and on NOAA Weather Radio, all hazards. When a tsunami hits, keep calm. Immediately move to the local tsunami shelter using defined tsunami evacuation routes. If there are no evacuation routes defined, move to higher ground that is at least 100 feet in elevation, a mile inland, or to the highest floor of a sturdy building, and stay there. This tsunami could contain a dozen waves, and they could be timed an hour apart. 
so don't be tempted to go back near the strike zone. If you're already in a safe location, stay there. Move by foot when possible. Do not drive. This keeps the roads unobstructed for emergency vehicles. Stay tuned to NOAA Weather Radio or news broadcasts for changes in tsunami alerts. Stay away from the coast and low-lying areas until local officials say it's safe to return. Remember to obey all evacuation orders. When the Cascadia earthquake begins, there will be, instead, a cacophony of barking dogs and a long-suspended, what was that moment, before the surface waves arrive. Surface waves are slower, lower-frequency waves that move the ground both up and down and side to side, the shaking starting in earnest. Soon after that shaking begins, the electrical grid will fail, likely everywhere west of the Cascades and probably well beyond. If it happens at night, the ensuing catastrophe will unfold in darkness. In theory, those who are at home when it hits should be safest. It is easy and relatively inexpensive to seismically safeguard a private dwelling. But lulled into nonchalance by their seemingly benign environment, most people in the Pacific Northwest have not done so. That nonchalance will shatter instantly. So will everything made of glass. Anything indoors and unsecured will lurch across the floor or come crashing down. Bookshelves, lamps, computers, canisters of flour in the pantry. Refrigerators will walk out of kitchens, unplugging themselves and toppling over. Water heaters will fall and smash interior gas lines. Houses that are not bolted to their foundations will slide off, or rather, they will stay put obeying inertia, while the foundations, together with the rest of the Northwest, jolt westward. Unmoored on the undulating ground, the homes will begin to collapse. Across the region, other, larger structures will also start to fail. Until 1974, the state of Oregon had no seismic code, and few places in the Pacific Northwest had one appropriate to a magnitude 9-0 earthquake until 1994. The vast majority of buildings in the region were constructed before that. Ian Madden, who directs the Oregon Department of Geology and Mineral Industries, estimates that 75% of all structures in the state of Oregon are not designed to withstand a major Cascadia quake. FEMA calculates that across the region, something on the order of a million buildings, more than 3,000 of them are schools, will collapse or be compromised in the earthquake. So will half of all highway bridges, 15 of the 17 bridges spanning Portland's two rivers, and two-thirds of railways and airports. Also, one-third of all fire stations, half of all police stations, and two-thirds of all hospitals. That's going to put a serious crimp in rescue capability. Of all natural disasters, tsunamis may be the closest to being completely unsurvivable. The only likely way to outlive one is not to be there when it happens. To steer clear of the vulnerable area in the first place, or get yourself to high ground as fast as possible. For the 71,000 people who live in the Cascadia's inundation zone, that will mean evacuating in the narrow window after one disaster ends and before another begins. They will be notified to do so only by the earthquake itself. A vibrate alert system, Kevin Couples, the city planner for the town of Seaside, Oregon, jokes. And they are urged to leave on foot since the earthquake will render roads impassable. Depending on location, they will have between 10 and 30 minutes to get out. That timeline does not allow for finding a flashlight, tending to an earthquake injury, hesitating amid the ruins of a home, searching for loved ones, pulling a cat out from underneath a bed, 
or being a good Samaritan. When that tsunami's coming, you run. Jay Wilson, the chair of the Oregon Seismic Safety Policy Advisory Commission, says. The time to save people from a tsunami is before it happens, but the region has not yet taken serious steps toward doing so. Hotels and businesses are not required to post evacuation routes or to provide employees with evacuation training. In Oregon, it has been illegal since 1995 to build hospitals, schools, firehouses, and police stations in the inundation zone. But those which are already in can stay, and any other new construction is permissible. Energy facilities, hotels, retirement homes. So you come in and I sit down, Ian Madden says, and I say, that's a stupid idea. And you say, thanks, now we've consulted. These lax safety policies guarantee that many people inside the inundation zone will not get out. 22% of Oregon's coastal population is 65 or older. 29% of the state's population is disabled, and that figure rises in many coastal counties. We can't save them, Kevin Couple says. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say, oh yeah, we'll go around and check on the elderly. No, we won't. Nor will anyone save the tourists. Washington State Park properties within the inundation zone see an average of 17,029 guests a day. Madden estimates that up to 150,000 people visit Oregon's beaches on summer weekends. Most of them won't have a clue as to how to evacuate, he says, and the beaches are the hardest place to evacuate from. Those who cannot get out of the inundation zone under their own power will quickly be overtaken by a greater one, the FEMA report goes on. A grown man is knocked over by ankle-deep water moving at 6.7 miles an hour. The tsunami will be moving more than twice that fast when it arrives. Its height will vary with the contours of the coast from 20 feet to more than 100 feet. It will not look like an Hokusai-style wave rising up from the surface of the sea and breaking from above. It will look like the whole ocean, elevated, overtaking land. Nor will it be made only of water, not once it reaches the shore. It'll be a five-story deluge of pickup trucks and door frames and cinder blocks and fishing boats and utility poles and everything else that once constituted the coastal towns of the Pacific Northwest. Wine glasses, antique vases, Humpty Dumpty, hip bones, hearts. What breaks quickly generally mends slowly, if at all. OSPAC estimates that in the I-5 corridor, it'll take between one and three months after the earthquake to restore electricity, a month to a year to restore drinking water and sewer service, six months to a year to restore major highways, and 18 months to restore health care facilities. On the coast, those numbers go up. Whoever chooses or has no choice but to stay there will spend three or six months without electricity, one to three years without drinking water and sewage, and three or more years without hospitals. Those estimates do not apply to the tsunami inundation zone which will remain uninhabitable for years. How much all this will cost is anyone's guess. FEMA puts every number on its relief and recovery plan except a price. But whatever the ultimate figure, and even though U.S. taxpayers will cover 75 to 100% of the damage, as happens in declared disasters, the economy of the Pacific Northwest will collapse. Crippled by a lack of basic services, businesses will fail or move away. Many residents will flee as well. OSPAC predicts a mass displacement event and a long-term population downturn. There you have it. 
This is serious stuff. What took place recently, according to FEMA, in the Cascadia subduction zone must be paid attention to. Your life literally depends on it. As for California, specifically, there are some California faults which are capable of generating a large tsunami. California is, however, also quite vulnerable to tsunamis generated by distant sources in Alaska, Chile, Japan, and all around the Pacific Rim, as witnessed on March 11, 2011, when the tsunami caused by a magnitude 9 earthquake in Japan struck Crescent City, Santa Cruz, and elsewhere along the California coast. More than a quarter of a million Californians, over 15,000 businesses, and hundreds of billions of dollars in buildings, infrastructure, port, maritime, and other assets in the state are at risk every day from tsunamis. The tragedy of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami raised national and international awareness and funding for tsunami hazard mitigation and preparedness. Since then, much has been done to improve California's tsunami warning system and to help coastal communities with emergency preparedness and public education in particular. Who and what is at risk of tsunami inundation in California? Two-thirds of more than 1,100 miles of California coast are naturally protected from tsunamis by cliffs and steeply sloped shores. However, the low-lying coastal areas are at greatest risk of tsunami inundation, and these also happen to be some of the most densely developed and populated parts of California. People and places at risk within California's 20 coastal counties there are 94 incorporated cities and 83 unincorporated communities at risk of tsunami inundation. That's 3,267,000 people who permanently reside in potential tsunami inundation areas identified by the state of California. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. While this is just roughly 1% of the 20-county resident population, vacation households and summertime populations can easily swell this figure to more than 3 million on any given day, as other Californians and visitors flock to coastal amusement parks, marinas, city and county beaches, and state and national parks. The cities of San Francisco, Alameda, Los Angeles, Long Beach, Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, and San Diego all have more than 10,000 residents living in potential tsunami inundation areas. The city of Alameda has the highest number, which is over 50% of the city's total population. Other smaller communities with high percentages of residents in potential tsunami inundation areas include Crescent City, Belvedere, Emeryville, Seal Beach, Del Mar, Coronado, and Imperial Beach. 
All these communities could face tremendous challenges evacuating residents ahead of the tsunami's arrival, especially island and peninsula communities with limited exit options. These communities could also face significant challenges in rebuilding following a damaging tsunami. There'll be much flooding in parts of Crescent City, Belvedere, Santa Cruz, Long Beach, Huntington Beach, and Newport Beach from a potential tsunami caused by a magnitude 9.1 earthquake off the southern coast of Alaska. While such a tsunami would cause damage along the entire California coast, it is definitely not the worst case scenario. California does, however, have some very dangerous near-shore faults and other hazards capable of generating a tsunami with little to no advance warning. The risks are far greater from near-shore sources because there is far less time to evacuate and take other preventive measures when they happen. As was tragically witnessed in the Tohoku region of Japan in 2011, time matters. Even with the best of warning systems, every minute counts in reducing life, loss, and property damage from a fast-approaching tsunami. California's most crucial near-shore tsunami hazard is produced by the Cascadia Fault Zone. Their last major rupture, a magnitude 9 earthquake in January of 1700, caused at least 620 miles of the North American coastline to lurch upward and seaward by about 65 feet. This drove a wall of ocean water that reached elevations of about 50 to 60 feet along the California coast and also sent waves as high as 20 feet to strike the Japanese shores 10 hours later. As we said before, there's about a 1 in 10 chance, the same odds you have of filling an inside or one open end straight in poker, that a similarly sized mega earthquake and tsunami will occur on the entire length of the Cascadia subduction zone in the next 50 years. There's also a much higher probability, around 40%, that the southernmost segment of the zone, and the one closest to California, will rupture in the next 50 years, generating a smaller but still major nearshore earthquake and tsunami. When such events do occur, Northern California coastal communities will have less than 20 minutes to react before large tsunami surges similar to the 1700 event begin to arrive. It'll take about an hour for waves on the order of 4 to 10 feet high to begin striking Southern California communities. In Southern and Central California, there are several offshore fault zones that are expected to thrust the earth upward when they rupture and potentially generate a tsunami. These potential near-shore tsunami sources include the Point Reyes Thrust Fault, Channel Islands Thrust Fault, San Mateo Thrust Fault, the Carlsbad Thrust Fault, and the Coronado Bank Fault. They are located offshore from Point Reyes, Huntington Beach, and Newport Beach, and in the offshore Ventura Santa Barbara Channel area. One of the best documented localized tsunamis occurred in 1927 with an earthquake occurring off Point Arguello, north of Santa Barbara. Additionally, even a moderate earthquake onshore in any part of coastal California could trigger a large submarine landslide and a more localized tsunami. In 1812, a tsunami struck the Santa Barbara and Ventura coastline after a large earthquake in the area. Although the area impacted might be more localized, there would be little warning time for such an event so close to shore. And now, given the density and popularity of beaches and other coastal areas, the consequences could be devastating. Landslide-induced tsunamis are possible in steep offshore areas along the California coast, such as the offshore Monterey Canyon region and areas near Goleta and Palos Verdes, 
but more study is needed to understand their likelihood and extent of impact. Researchers have also discovered remains of what appears to be a large submarine landslide off the Palos Verdes coast that may have been triggered by a magnitude 7 or greater earthquake. They estimate that such an event could generate localized tsunami waves reaching from 25 to 40 feet high. You also have the risk of tsunamis coming in from distant sources. Since the tidal gauge was first installed in the Crescent City Harbor in 1934, it has recorded 34 tsunamis, mostly originating from distant places, 44 in the last half century. In the last half century, California has sustained damage and even deaths from tsunamis originating in the Aleutian Islands in 1946, Chile in 1960 and 2010, Alaska in 1964, the Kuril Islands in 2006, and Japan 2011. These powerful waves can arrive at California shores within 4 to 24 hours after the earthquake. In recent decades, one of the most damaging tsunamis impacting California resulted from the magnitude 9.2 Alaska earthquake of 1964. About four hours after that earthquake, parts of Northern California were struck by waves more than 20 feet high that flooded low-lying communities such as Crescent City, killing 11 people in Crescent City and 13 people statewide. In his recent book, The Raging Sea, author Dennis Powers describes a series of huge waves, most likely four, with the last being the deadliest, hitting his home in Crescent City, California, March 27, 1964. The ocean withdraws, comes barreling in 25 feet high in the fourth large deadly wave, and goes inland two miles. At this time, you have tanks exploding. You have 300 buildings and businesses destroyed. You have a third of the community homeless. The fourth wave washes in tons of sea debris, uproots trees, and rips asphalt off the streets. Houses tear away from their foundations. Cars, trucks, and giant logs ram through walls of downtown buildings. But even in the light of a full moon, authorities don't immediately see the full extent of the damage. Among the shop owners who return to the shore before the fourth wave hits, is 27-year-old Gary Clausen. That night, Gary, his parents, his fiancée, and two employees return to the tavern to retrieve the cash box and lock up just in case there's more flooding. Clausen recalls it was his father's 54th birthday. My dad, I'll never forget, he jumped up on the bar and drew himself a beer and he says, well, happy birthday to me. He says, let it come, recalls Gary Clausen but no one knew it was about to come. With an eerie hissing, the brackish waters rise suddenly. Clausen sees his brand new white Pontiac Grand Prix lift up and then crash down upon his father's Dodge Dart. Dark water rushes in through the front door. Clausen yells for everyone to climb up on the bar. And about that time, the west wall of the building caved in and just kind of crumpled in the middle and took it right off the foundation. We went back probably 250 feet or so and the building hung up in the trees that were in the back, describes Clausen. The tavern is bobbing like a cork in the ocean. Clausen tells everyone to get on the roof, but gasoline from a nearby storage plant is spreading in the water. The danger of a fire means the roof isn't safe. Plus, Clausen's mother can't swim. By now, they're a party of eight, and a neighbor, Mac McGuire, suggests they swim out to find his small boat. Clausen agrees and they jump into the icy water. 
And we made our way through floating mobile homes and motor homes and propane tanks and stuff. And when I actually could get my foot down on something, I was right in the middle of Highway 101. It was just right up to my chin, says Clausen. They soon find the boat and Clausen rows by himself over to the tavern rooftop to pick up his group. And I was kind of trying to cut jokes and tell my mom and dad, you know, everything's going to be fine and whatnot. Two more rows and we'd have been on dry land. But the water started receding. Tsunami waves can recede just as fast as they rush in. That's what happened in Crescent City that night. The boat now is spun sideways and starts heading for a tunnel under a four-lane highway. At the end of the tunnel is an iron grate that's already catching debris, cars, logs, and refrigerators. And we're headed right toward it. The boat flips, and Clausen is horrified to see his parents and fiancé thrashing in the water just ahead of him before they hit the grate. Within seconds, he hits it too. I remember being just smashed flat up against all the debris, and then I knew that I was drowning, and I was saying to myself, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. So I took one chance, and I knew I couldn't go up. So I pushed down, hit bottom, and then pressure forced me through two of the steel pilings. His mother, father, fiance, and two employees don't make it. Six other people died in Crescent City that night, including two small children. What needs to be done to address California's current tsunami risk? For more than a decade, the California Office of Emergency Services and the Geological Survey of California have partnered to form the California Tsunami Hazard Preparedness and Mitigation Program to help California's coastal communities better prepare against the impact of tsunamis. As of March 6, 2014, there are 38 tsunami-ready sites in California, 21 of which are cities, 8 are counties, 5 are military sites, parks, or special districts, 2 are Indian tribes, and there was one university and one commercial site. One of the state's tsunami program's first projects mapped the potential tsunami inundation areas along the California coast. These maps have proven to be immensely helpful to local and state emergency planning and for evacuating residents when recent tsunami warnings were issued. And for the rest of California, take heart. Cities all along the coast, as far south as San Diego, have been funding threat assessment studies and looking at ways to better protect their areas from the tsunami waves that could be triggered by undersea quakes. The chances of this happening might be remote, but the potential loss of life due to the enormity of the waves and the small window of time allotted for survival makes these studies literal lifesavers. For example, San Diego's Rose Canyon Fault is capable of producing a magnitude 6.9 earthquake that could kill 2,000 people and inflict $40 billion in property damage, according to a preliminary study sponsored by the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute. The EERI team also says in the recent study that the quake would cause an offshore canyon to collapse, producing a tsunami that would swamp the Silver Strand and send waves surging into San Diego Bay. The tsunami would strike before the public could be widely notified of the threat, making it particularly deadly, said the study team, which is mostly composed of scientists, geologists, and engineers from EERI's San Diego chapter. The study further says the quake could badly damage San Diego International Airport, Naval Air Station North Island, and older buildings in Balboa Park. Nearly 200,000 buildings countywide would suffer moderate to severe damage, and 33,000 families 
would be displaced. The shaking would break scores of water and sewer lines, possibly causing wastewater to spill into San Diego and Mission Bays. Scientists have produced similar scenarios for faults that pose a threat to such cities as Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle. In California, the research has led to more aggressive efforts to retrofit older buildings that are susceptible to quake damage and institute warning systems and signs. And all this while, you folks on the East Coast have been thinking you're glad all you have to worry about is hurricanes. Not so, says the USGS. Although known history doesn't show any major hits to the East Coast other than the meteor, which probably created the Chesapeake Bay, a seismological survey conducted recently does show a serious potential for submarinal landslides that could trigger devastating tsunamis. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you take the time to subscribe to our show. At Apple iTunes, you can download the podcast app from the App Store. It's free, it's easy to use, and it carries both our shows. This one and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where we tell classic short stories from writers like Jack London, Guy de Maupassant, and many others. If you have an Android, there are dozens of great podcatcher apps, all free, that you can download to keep up with us, including podbay.fm, stitcher.com, and audioboom.com. Our website is 1001storiespodcast.com, and stop by Facebook at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. Give us a page like and post a comment about one of our shows. The debate can get pretty lively over there sometimes. We're also asking for likes at Twitter, where we post often. And the address there is at 1001podcast. Your sponsor support, when you take the time to go to our sponsor website, keeps our show on the air. And our sponsors are great. Until next week, when Jack the Ripper terrorizes London, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.